Well, everywhere that Jesus went, he tended to do two main things that were unique. He taught and he performed miracles. These are the two things that made him notable amongst his peers. He taught and he performed miracles. And it was these two things that continually got Jesus into trouble over and over again. If he never taught, never performed miracles, he would have just existed. He would have just been there, just another guy in Israel. People continued to misunderstand what he would teach, and they'd continue to misunderstand what he would do. They'd hear his teaching, and sometimes they would confuse what he was saying. In fact, we've seen some of those instances in our study through John already. We'll see more upcoming. And it is oftentimes that when Jesus performed a miracle, the response that people would have to that miracle would be wrong. They'd make assumptions about things. They would have in their flesh a desire for material blessings stoked. Maybe just curiosities about having witnessed a party kind of trick in front of others. And so these were the things that were a constant struggle. As we have walked through the book of John so far, and as we'll continue, Jesus will continue to preach, he'll continue to teach, and we'll be unpacking those things as we come to them. But this morning, we're going to observe Jesus' works. We're going to observe a moment where a miracle is performed, and Jesus is not merely going to perform a miracle. We're actually going to hear him speak about the desire for miracles, the desire for signs. This is an especially helpful passage to help us think about works, miracles. And it's my hope that we would think rightly about Jesus' signs and his wonders, to use more words for his performing of miracles. If you have your Bibles with you today, I'd ask you to turn to John chapter 4. That's where we are in our time through this gospel. I'm going to read through verses 46 to 54. I'll pray to ask the Lord to be with us in this time. And then I'm going to go back through a a verse or two at a time, unpack um, as we go through. And then by the time we get to the end of the sermon today, it's my hope to just help you see some things that I've observed here. I hope you see and observe these things in the text and then provide some application based upon those observations. So if you have your Bibles, it'd be helpful to turn there. John chapter 4, I'm going to read 46 through 54. Let's do that. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you've seen signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Let's pray. 
Lord, what a great passage here. We see Jesus speak about his miracles for a moment and then act in a miraculous way. And what we see here, Father, I think is especially helpful for us as we think of the many prayer requests that we may have, whether for healing, for provision in a supernatural way, the kinds of things that we might have in our minds that could just be a desire for a miracle, Lord. So help us to think rightly about these things, especially in a day where so many are so confused about Jesus' miracles in the past and even in the present. So help us to see these things clearly through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's go back to the beginning of our passage again in verse 46. So Jesus, he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So this is about to take place in a city named Cana in the region of Galilee. That's the region where Jesus grew up. He grew up in the city of Nazareth, which was nearby, just a few miles walk from Cana. Jesus had been there already once before in the gospel according to John. That's where he had performed his first miracle, turning the water into wine at a wedding. One of Jesus' own disciples, Nathanael, was from Cana. And Jesus' mother, Mary, in all likelihood, had relatives there. That's probably why she's a prominent part in the story of the, the wedding where he turns the water into wine. We spoke through some of those things back a few months ago when we covered that passage. Here, Jesus is in Cana again. He's made his way north from being in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, then out to the wilderness of Judea where his disciples were baptizing, and then he headed north through Samaria to get to where we see now as Cana. We spent uh, some number of weeks on what happened in that interlude between him being in Jerusalem and back up in Cana, where he spoke with a woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and spent a couple of days preaching and saving people there. When he gets to Cana, he's confronted by a man from Capernaum. Now, we'll deal with Capernaum in other weeks, but Capernaum is just on a, it's a, it's a decent-sized city on the northern border of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles distance, a hiking distance, depending on where the roads were, were at that particular time. And Capernaum's the place where Jesus did a significant number of his, uh, his miracles. His teaching took place in and around Capernaum. Some of his own disciples were from that city. Many of his miracles were performed there, some of his most notable ones even. Here, an official has a sick son, a son who was ill. He was, too, he was uh, ill enough to be at the point of death, the Bible tells us. Something doesn't happen, this boy is going to die. He's a beloved one for this official. Later on, the language that this official will use for his son is an endearing term. It's not just my kid. It's, it's my beloved son, this one that I love, that I cherish. And so it's that kind of uh, uh, relationship that we already see on display here. He's an official. We don't know that very well in English to look at that word. What does that mean? What it literally means in Greek is king's man, king's man. So he's one of the royal court. He works for Herod. We don't know exactly who he is, but few people have offered up in history who he might have been. There's Chusa, there's Menaean, a couple of named officials of Herod's court that we see elsewhere in the Gospels. People assume, hey, maybe it could be that guy. We don't know for sure. We just know that he was a royal official. Some of your 
Some of your Bibles and your translations might say nobleman. A wealthy man of power and influence. Right out of the gate, this should be just a quick reminder to us that even the rich and the powerful go through trials. God shows no partiality. There has been much made of Jesus' ministry amongst the poor, the downcast, the, the trodden, and this is certain to be true. The Lord has a special place in his heart for the oppressed, for the widow, for the orphan. That is definitely the case. But he does show no partiality. We see God step in time and time again, even for the wealthy, even for the powerful, even for the influential. Because no matter how much money you make, no how powerful or influential you become, some moments come that remind us that at the end of the day, we're all on the equal footing. Good and bad things may happen to us all. And so it's for the love of his son that this man makes the trek uphill to Cana. That's why we're going to see that language. Come down, he came down, he went up. Cana's up in the mountains and the hills and uh, Capernaum's down in the, uh, the, right on the shore of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. So he makes this trek up north, excuse me, up, down south, but uphill to find Jesus in Cana out of love for his son. Another interesting note, uh, I read this uh, one 16th century reformer, his name was Wolfgang Musculus. He said this, he noted how much more love descends than ascends. In all the Gospels, we have never heard of any sons or daughters coming to Christ on behalf of their parents. That's what he notes. We never see children come together to bring Jesus to their parents. We see repeatedly parents going to Jesus on behalf of their kids. And it's just a reminder of the special kind of provisional love that parents have for their children. It should then be a special reminder why it is that we're told to refer to our God in heaven as Father, that kind of relational, provisional, unidirectional care and love that comes from him. Nothing can so humble a parent than when their child's life is in danger. You haven't seen desperation until you've looked into the eyes of a mother or father pleading for the life of their children. Just this first service, right after service is over, I was talking to a young couple here who's pregnant expecting a baby and found out there could be complications and they're just pleading please pray for us pray for the baby and you just see the exasperation and the desperation in the eyes of mother and father there's a special kind of ask and that's what we see on display here by this man from Capernaum how does Jesus respond to his request well he says it next in verse 48 so Jesus said to him unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. He vents some kind of frustration. We see, we see a bit of exasperation here. Jesus criticizes the crowd of people. He's amongst people here. Uh, the, the word for you that's here in English, we just have it as you, but it's y'all, it's plural. Jesus is speaking to more people than just this guy. It is not a private condemnation, a private accusation. He's speaking to the Jews around him. Their belief was contingent upon signs and wonders. He says they will not believe unless he does just the right things. It's clear that the crowds are deserving this indictment. While it is not wrong for the man to come to Christ on behalf of his child, that is in no way wrong. We see that celebrated in other places in the Gospels. 
Jesus knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of the people around this guy, the y'all that he's talking to, and this guy, because he speaks to him, to him that the crowd would hear. He knows this nobleman's heart. If this man's son was not sick, I don't think he'd come to Jesus. And you'll notice that the nobleman never denies that charge. If, it, if any part of you is thinking, like, that's kind of harsh. His kid's dying. And he's like, oh, you honor miracles. It's kind of harsh. The nobleman never denies it. He never goes, whoa, no, Jesus, I would have come anyway. Because you're my Christ. You're my king. You're my Messiah, my Lord and Savior. I would drop everything and come to wherever you are. No. He just doubles down on his request. Nevertheless, will you give me a sign? It's hard to miss the point here that if you were to read through chapter 4, just six or seven verses before this, one paragraph before this, the Samaritans were much clearly uh, very much softer-hearted in their reception of Jesus. I want to read for you verses 41 and 42. You can just look up another paragraph here. And many more Samaritans believed because of his word. Remember that? Just in the last couple of weeks, we talked to that. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That kind of faith was imitable. What did Jesus do when he ran into those people? He stayed two days. Many believed. Many came to saving faith in Jesus. But as for these Galileans, people from Cana, Nazareth, Capernaum, Bethsaida, They've been most impressed with his signs. Their belief was conditional. I want to read for you John chapter 2, and you'll understand why. In John chapter 2, the very end of that chapter, we see Jesus going down to Jerusalem to the Passover feast, and who is he doing miracles amongst? Well, a bunch of Jews, to be sure, but specifically Galileans. We saw this last week in a couple of verses before where we are today, that Jesus went to Galilee and they, re- they remembered all the works that he did when they saw those in Jerusalem. They went down as he went down. He did works there. They were impressed. This is what it says in John 2 about those people. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So that was what happened, right? They saw signs. They believed in his name. But the text didn't stop there, and this was months ago now that I preached through this. But you'll remember we pointed out the next verses. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You remember that when we walked through that a few months ago? Jesus was not impressed by that kind of belief. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew what kind of belief it was. It was the kind of, kind of a belief that I saw, I saw a miracle. How could you not believe? It was, it was undisputed. But their belief, the faith of these Galileans, was very conditioned upon something. Now, just principally, think of this with me. In one sense, all belief is conditional. All, all belief is conditioned upon something. What's the basis for your belief? There's always something. A person could believe in Jesus on the basis of his words or on 
the testimony of somebody else. We saw that happen in the Samaritan account. Maybe a person could believe in Jesus on the testimony or the basis of his character. I observed this sinless dude. Maybe that. But in this case, their belief was conditioned upon his works. His works. Now, if all belief is conditioned on something, and it's not bad to believe Jesus on his word, or even on the testimony of somebody else's word, why then would it be bad for belief to come about after the observation of miracles or signs, works? Why? Why would that be a problem? And I think the answer is because belief on the basis of works is a very tenuous kind of faith. Very tenuous. It's fragile. It is not deep-rooted. It is like when Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 13 about the parable of the sower and the seeds. That there are some who, who hear the word and receive it with joy, but the root does not go down. So that when trial and tribulation comes upon them, They're burned up, like seeds that are thrown on rocky soil. Belief on the basis of works is a very tenuous kind of belief. Jesus' miracles were meant to point people beyond the miracles themselves and to point to him. But for many, their faith was not in him, but in the works. In fact, a couple of chapters from now, we're going to see this on high display in John chapter 6. His most public most witnessed miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. It is the only, uh, only miracle that sh- is shown up in all four gospel accounts apart from his resurrection. The only one. 5,000 men, probably heads of household, maybe 10,000, 15,000 people. We'll, we'll spend more time on that when we get to John 6. But after he feeds 5,000 plus people in this miraculous account with this tiny little lunch from a single boy... Everyone sees this, and a bunch of people start to follow him. And you'd think, oh, this is great. They believe in Jesus now. But what does Jesus say to them? Well, in John 6, 26, this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So what was the problem with the signs? Clearly they saw the sign. But that sign did not produce genuine faith in Christ, but greater hunger for food. Their belief was more about something that they were getting than it was about something in Jesus himself. Perhaps an illustration of this might be uh, the first time that I met my wife, I thought she was gorgeous. Like one of those kind of walked on the street, double, oh my goodness, you know, beautiful. And today, if you were to ask me, why do you love your wife? If all I were to say is, well, she, she's, have you seen her? She's gorgeous. That's, oh, that's great, Rich. That's awesome you think that. What else? She's pretty. What else? She's beautiful. She's, her hair, her eyes. I mean, my goodness. You'd be like, really? That's, that's it? That's the basis of your love? You'd say that'd be pretty shallow. But if her beauty was just one of the things that caught my attention, first drew me to her, and then as I got to know her, I fell in love with her. Now now I love her. The beauty could go away, and I would love her. Well, that would be a wonderful thing. 
You see, true faith goes beyond seeking personal, material, or earthly benefits. It involves a profound belief in Jesus as Savior and a love for Him. Jesus Himself says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And Jesus even knows that there's a danger in performing miracles. That's why he's talking the way that he does here. That's why on occasion he refuses to do miracles in certain circumstances. It would be the basis for further judgment for those whose hearts are already hardened. In other words, performing miracles for those whose hearts are hardened and will remain so, not only does not produce good for them, it could produce bad. There's an inherent danger in performing miracles. You get distracted by the work rather than the person. Have you ever heard of somebody in our day performing miracles? Like uh, someone to get their testimony or testify that, oh, I went to this big church or I heard this, I saw this YouTube video and a guy hadn't walked in 10 years and the pastor went up and uh, you know, said something over him and, and then all of a sudden he's healed, right? And, and what is oftentimes the concern that people have over that? Well, then it becomes about that guy and not the one who should be doing the healing. There's an inherent danger in performing miracles. It becomes about the trick. I've heard this principle before. I think it certainly applies to this kind of concern, that danger. What you win them with is what you win them to. Ever heard that? What you win them with is what you win them to. I've heard it definitely used in a pastoral context about ministry methods, how to grow a church kind of stuff. It was done by bunch of things that coddle fleshly desires, then what you win them with is what you win them to. Churches and ministries that draw people in with promises of health and prosperity, for example, produce very shallow results. Because what happens when you don't have health? What happens when you don't get the prosperity? Is your faith, is your belief, is your excitement in God or is it in what you think you might get from him? And you need to know this. If you're not a believer today, you need to hear this. As a Christian, what I want for you, and I think I can speak on behalf of all the other believers here, what we want for you is not just that you have a whole bunch of blessings. Oh, goodness, if only they'd come to Christ, their life would get better, their jobs would improve, their relationships would heal, they'd get better health in their bodies, uh, all of the things around them would just flourish. No, that might not happen. We want for you to know and love Christ. We want for you to have Him. Because you're a sinner like we are. You're deserving of punishment from God, not reward. But Jesus, in God's infinite love, was sent that He would go to the cross to bear the punishment for our sins, that if you, in your sin, if you repent of your sins and put your faith in him, believe in him, not that you will get all the good, material, present, temporal blessings. Oftentimes God blesses, praise the Lord. But that's not what we're going to try to win you to. We don't want you to become a loyal customer. We want for you to love a crucified Christ we want for you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to him, believe on him, and have eternal life. Yes, of course we want the good blessings that come from that. We want the temporal blessings, the good things that God does offer so often to us. 
And yes, we want the eternal blessing, eternal life, like Jesus died, was buried, and he raised to new life. Everyone who believes on him is also raised to new life. But you can have eternal life with him. We want that for you. But if we're not, you're not a believer today, we want for you to love him, not just the good you think you might get in this earth if you follow him. So Jesus levels the warning. He levels that warning to them. That kind of frustrated, unless you see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. And what does the man say in response to that? Sir, come down before my child dies. The official seems to just totally disregard Jesus' statement. And why? He wants his son healed. Now, on the one hand, it is good that the man brings his concern to Jesus. But on the other hand, he's still seeking a sign, the very thing that Jesus just condemned. So I want you to consider for a moment, this man, knowingly or not knowingly, let's give him benefit of the doubt. He's trying to do the best thing he can here. He puts Jesus in a bit of a pickle. He puts him in a no-win situation. At least this second request, the first one, he offers it up. Jesus is like, man, all you want is miracles. And he asks again, and on that second request, he puts Jesus in the bind. What's the bind? Because Jesus really has two options. He can grant the man's request or deny his request. If he grants the man's request, just simply goes with him and performs what would inevitably be a public miracle. I mean, if he's going, people are going with, the, let's, let's see what happens. They're going to follow him on the way down to Capernaum, wait outside the house, and they're going to come out, hey, he healed the boy. And what does that produce? It would very likely further promote the very kind of superficial faith that Jesus just criticized. He would have acquiesced to a crowd's desire and demand for miracles, and it would have not helped their souls. So he's in trouble. So if he does that, that's no good. Because he gives them what would not be good for them. But what if he denies the request? What if he just refuses to go? Therefore, I will not do another sign. I will not do another miracle. Well, what will be the result? The boy would die. (laughs) So it's kind of a no-win. Jesus is so good at getting out of those no-win situations. He never falters. He never trips. It's never like where you and I are in a hard situation and later after we talk about it, we go, oh, if I had thought about this then, I would have said this or done this. You know, we do that. Jesus is perfect. Look what he does. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. What a perfect response. He still provides life. He heals and does what is good, but he doesn't harm by doing what would be bad, by just giving him another trick because they asked for it. You get it? He heals him in such a private way that there would be no crowd to march down with him and then respond as they did in John 6 because they just wanted more signs. Go, your son will live. He heals with no negative baggage. But there's something else astounding. 
that happens in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And what's the result? What's the, what's the immediate result that John the evangelist, who's writing this, what's the immediate result that he writes? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man became a believer in Jesus' words. Just like the Samaritans before him. What did he see? That was the indictment, right? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's the indictment. Is that what happened with this man? He didn't see anything. It wouldn't be until the next day the story will tell us we'll finally see. What had happened here? This man believed Jesus' word. That's genuine faith. It's just authentic. It's no longer contingent upon the physical observation of a miracle. He didn't walk out with a skeptic's mind and go, we'll see. It would be hard to judge him if he were to say that, wouldn't it? Come, come down, heal my son, or he's going to die. And Jesus says, go, your son will live. I'll go check. It would be hard to judge him for that response, and yet that's not what his response is. Technically, the first miracle that's recorded is this one. He believed. He went from unbelief to belief. And you know the rest of the story, but we'll read it again. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. Why, why do you, pause, I, I didn't have this in the notes. Why would he do that? I think because he knows, I think it's every step. He's thinking, oh, will he do it? Will my son live? And he sees his servants coming up. He, oh yeah, that, oh, I, I know these guys. Stop on the road. Oh no, what's the news? What's the news? What could it be? He's gone. Don't, don't, don't bug Jesus anymore. No, it's the good news. When? When? <laughs> Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour. The hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. The man already had believed in Jesus. And now, after hearing from his servants, it was undeniable that Jesus had healed his son. Don't believe that true faith can't have doubts. John the Baptist had true faith in Jesus and still sends his disciples, uh, are you really the Christ? David in the Old Testament had true faith and doubted over and over again. It is not hard to imagine this man believing, have genuine faith in Jesus, and still wondering, wondering, what will happen when I get there? But now he knows. He himself believed, and all his household. How did they believe? How did the household become believers? It's really obvious. It doesn't say it here. It's implied. There's no way around it. They weren't there to hear Jesus' words. In fact, mom could have just been like, oh, the cold compress worked. Whoo! No. 
Something made them believers. He told them. He told them. Oh, oh, I'm so glad. Yesterday, I found him. I found Jesus. Like I said, I went to go find him. And I told him, I asked him to come, and he said he, said he wouldn't come, but go, your son will live. And he's alive. And the house celebrates, and they believe. And once again, the gospel spreads. It's awesome. One more celebrating household in Capernaum. People that will celebrate and sing praises to Jesus for all eternity with us because of this. I just want to make a few observations from our text today and then offer some application. The first observation regards faith and healing. It regards faith and healing. You need to know that many people today think that God's healing only comes in proportion to our faith. Very faithful, lots of miracles. Very faithful, lots of answers to prayer. Less faithful, struggle, doubt, don't expect much answer to prayer. In fact, some think that it must be, if there's no healing, if there's no answer to prayer, it must be because the one who prayed is lacking in faith. You didn't pray right. You're doing it wrong. Have you heard of this kind of error? Some believe that our external blessings come only in proportion to our faith. Some even say that if God doesn't answer your prayer, it's because of some failing in you. This is an egregious lie from the pit of hell. It's an egregious lie. I want you to consider, how much faith does the nobleman's son have? None. No one in his household is a believer. They don't become believers till the end of the story, after he's healed. You see that? Neither Jesus nor the nobleman ever once mention any faith or other good qualities about the boy. He's almost certainly never even met Jesus. It's not as though the man comes to Jesus, Jesus, my son, he's your biggest fan. Can you please do something for him? Your greatest fan. It's one who loves and trusts in you. Can you? No. And this is not unique. Like the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, the woman, the Canaanite woman who goes to Jesus on behalf of her daughter is filled with a demon. How much faith did that girl have? None. He never met her. Like that centurion servant in Matthew 8, also from Capernaum. How much faith did the servant have? None. And Jesus often heals people who have never met him from great distances. And in these instances, there's no mention of the faith of the one who needs healing. It is never on the faith of the one who needs healing. Jesus even raises dead people. How much faith do they have? How faithful was Lazarus in the tomb that he willed himself out? How about the son of the widow of Nain? Jesus had never been through that city before. He walks up, sees a funeral procession and a coffin, and he lays his hand on it, and boom, corpse sits up and reanimates, comes back to life. How much faith did that man have? How about Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old girl, synagogue ruler's daughter? How much faith did she have that produced physical life back again? None. Jesus casts out demons from people who show no faith whatsoever. 
constantly does these kinds of miracles. Now, some might say, here's, here's what some might argue. Okay, 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 okay. Maybe it's not about the faith of the one being healed, but about the other one who's doing the healing. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's the one who's asking God for the healing. So the guy today who says, I can heal, and comes around, and I'll pray to God, and I'll lay hands on and heal this person. The one seeking the miracle from God. At least he or she must have great faith. Well, let me ask you that about this nobleman. Which came first? Faith or healing? Jesus literally just indicted him and this crowd for not having faith. You will, will not believe. He didn't say you don't believe, you struggle with belief. You have a few doubts here or there. You, man, and all these around him will not believe. You refuse to believe. And what's the next thing that Jesus does? Heals. And what comes after, after that healing? Belief. Saving faith. Jesus healed this man's son in spite of his lack of faith, not because of his great faith. In fact, the way that Jesus talks about faith is how much do you need? What's the measure you need in order to move mountains? Mustard seed, tiny bit. It's not, man, if only, if only you had more faith, you could do more mighty things. No, no, no. Just a little bit is all you need. You just need to have that little faith in a big God. That's all. God is not waiting for your faith to be perfect before he graciously answers your prayers. You must know that. You must know that. If you're ever in that place, oh, do you know who's most susceptible to this lie? It's the newest of believers the youngest amongst us. This is what's so awful about this kind of lie. Brand new to the faith, just came to know the Lord a few months ago, and I'm praying for something to happen, and it's not. It must be me. You see how awful that is? God's not waiting for your faith to be perfected before he graciously answers your prayers. He's working in your heart. He's working to sanctify, and just as a good father, he graciously heals, provides, and cares for. Oh, how often churches... And Christians show their imperfections. And God is not stubbornly waiting there, arms crossed, grumpy face, until you've cleaned up all your beliefs and all your behaviors before he works in your life. I see at least three points of application on this thought I want to draw out here. We should be filled with gratitude. That's first. We should be filled with gratitude. Any blessing that you receive, you should just say, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. I don't deserve this blessing. I don't deserve the answer to this prayer. It is not as though though I've, I've gotten your good favor because of how good I am. You just love me. You're just being gracious. All the good blessings that we receive are not owing to any internal goodness or faith in you. You are not owed the blessings of God by your own merit. It doesn't go that way, and it's not the opposite either, that he's denying good blessings because you're just too fallen. It's not as though God's grumpily standing there with his arms crossed, angry, and an angel comes in and, ah, Chuck is asking for you to answer that prayer again. Has he stopped sinning yet? No. He's not getting any blessings. Not at all. We should be filled with gratitude. Second, he is gracious, we should be too. Like a good father for his children. Father provides for his kids. He takes care of his kids. Gives them a, a roof and a bed and a pillow and blankets and and clothes for them, and gives, provides food for them. And what if they disobey? Take away the bed, take away the roof, take away the pillow, take away the food. 
no lunch for you this week. No. Good father disciplines his children and provides for them. Out of an overflow of love, he acts. Because a father's love and care should not be conditional. It should be filled with grace, just like our Father in heaven. Romans 12, 9 through 10 says it this way. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. And check out this part. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's not an exchange. It's not a give and take. It's not a, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No, real love goes first and doesn't keep score. Okay, I did some really good things for you last week. It's kind of your turn to do some good things for me this week now, right? I'll, well, I'll just wait until you finish yours, and then, I'll, then I can owe you back again. It doesn't work that way. Outdo one another in showing honor. We don't keep score like that. We ought not do that. So again, first, we should be filled with gratitude when we experience blessings. Second, like God is gracious, we should be gracious to one another too. Third, we should not consider blessings from God as approval for all of our beliefs and behaviors. I want you to think about that. We should not consider blessings from God as approval for all of our beliefs and behaviors. Heard this so many times. When something goes well in your life, don't assume it's a reward or payment for your good works. <sighs> Man. God must really be pleased with me right now because of this blessing. I've known people who've achieved some sort of success in life and then gone on to assume their success must be God's way of showing he approves of wholesale all that they do. This must be his way of saying I'm doing right. I have Latter-day Saint friends and neighbors who think, look at all my achievement. This is clearly proof that I am pleasing God, that he's happy with me. How is it possible for a church to grow so fast and so numerous that there could be 15 plus, 20, maybe million Mormons people out there if God isn't in it and blessing it? That's the line. Imagine that God blesses you with good friendships, blesses you with a church that loves and cares for you, good health, a well-paying job. Don't you consider those blessings as God's approval of everything you ever do? Of course not. God blesses us in spite of of our failings. I've seen this in individuals. I've seen this in churches. In individuals, I've known uh, Christian women marry non-believing men. And God chooses to bless them with healthy children. Maybe even, and I've seen this blessing happen, salvation for the husband. Oh, man. And it's a blessed life. If that woman were to counsel another, what would she say? Hey, do exactly what I did. Go, go sin against God in these ways, and look what he'll bless you with. No, you'd go, no. The blessings were in spite of the failings. It was just because he's good. It's just because he's gracious. He wasn't waiting for you to fix all of your wrongs before he just took care of you. We must see and remember this. I've seen this principle play out even more times maybe in, in churches. Real churches, like real, believing churches, gospel-preaching churches, where salvation comes about and people come to faith in God. As a pastor, I get to see this up front and personal when I'm talking with other pastors and at conferences and, and workshops and all kinds of different settings. Churches who may make certain compromises, uh, yielding to the demands of a godless culture. Well, I don't like hearing these things, so we're going to say less of that, right? They don't reject the gospel, but they just selectively edit it so they can only have to preach the parts that don't ruffle feathers. 
right? And they grow. They multiply. More staff, more people, more services, more campuses, more ministry, more salvation. More people genuinely come into saving faith in Christ, raising their kids to do likewise, baptisms. As best as we can measure, measurable fruit. It's real. And they see that growth of their church as God's stamp of approval on the ministry methods. Clearly, God is more pleased with that church than that church. So they write books, host conferences, try to help other churches do the same things they're doing because this is the blessed work of God. But we must remember this principle. The apparent blessings in our lives are not owing to the level of godliness in our lives. God's not waiting for us to get all our ducks in a row before he blesses us individually, as a family, in our churches. That's why when we see that sometimes as a pastor, I go, oh, you know, Rich, you see in that other pastor, that other church, some of the decisions they're making, do you think that those are in line with the word? No, no, I don't think that's in line with the word. Do you think that honors what God wants? No, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. So isn't God going to strike their ministry and no one come to faith? No, no. doesn't work like that either. In fact, I pray there will be much fruit. I pray that more people come to saving faith there. I pray that more people learn to love God and his word there. More generations of believers come out of there and let God sanctify and work in that church over time and not sit there stubbornly waiting until they finally get everything right. And the flip side, of course, is true as well. When you go through struggles and trials, ah, God's judging you. He's angry. This was the story of Job. Remember the story of Job? Awful calamity, great pain came upon his life. God took away everything good that he had in his life. Even his physical body was failing and attacked and miserably under the control of the enemy, Satan. God just turned him over. It was awful what happened to Job. And he's crying out to God and he's speaking to some of his friends and explaining what's going on. The big point, Job knew his pain and loss were not equivalent to whatever wrongs he may do. Job did not believe he was perfect. He says multiple times, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong things, and I would sacrifice to God if I knew what those wrong things were. In fact, I know that he'd forgive my heart because he knows how much I love him. God, just show me what I've done wrong so I can make good on it. But how is it possible that this level of pain could come? And his friends are going, there must be something secret going on. There must be something equivalent to the level of pain, Job. You're lying to us. And what's the summary at the end of Job? We ought never try to consider the experience of our lives to be proportionate to what would be deserving of reward or punishment in our lives. No, God was working according to the purpose of his will. So again, we should be grateful for God's blessing and not think of it as God's universal endorsement in all our lives. I'll, just, I'll say these last two points quickly because I've kind of run out of time. God's ways are different than our ways, and always better. Did you notice that Jesus did not fulfill the man's request? What was the request? Come with me. Did Jesus? No. No, he didn't. He denied that request, but he gave him something better. He did not answer according to what he had asked. He gave him what he needed. Jesus' answers to our prayers are better than what we ask. And when I say that, I mean always Always better. Every time. Every time you ask the Lord for something, you get better than what you could have ever come up for yourself. Sometimes the Lord answers the 
prayer request exactly as asked. And sometimes he doesn't. And not one time does he go, well, I did the worst thing because, nope. He will work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. When you offer a request to Jesus, get ready for him to work in ways that you never saw coming. And be grateful for it because it is good. And lastly, no request is too big for God. None. You notice Jesus doesn't go, I'm kind of got a schedule. I don't have time. Take care of your son. And I don't want to stir up all this miracle asking either. So, no. Jesus not only performs miracles, but he does so effortlessly. Effortlessly. He just speaks. He doesn't have to be in the proximity. He doesn't have to be anywhere close. What does the guy want? He wants Jesus to come follow him down, probably with an old entourage. It'd be not hard to imagine that. Follow him down. Let me take you to my house. And he travels on the way down to a house. And he's expecting Jesus to stand over his son and do the Mr. Miyagi thing. <laughs> Hands on. Some, 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 some kind of observable, miraculous something. But Jesus doesn't need to do that. He is the creator of the universe. He speaks galaxies into existence with a thought verbalized. I've seen movies that illustrate that idea of uh, like, like a, um, a Jedi, like Star Wars kind of, where uh, the Jedi has to harness the force and you see him do some great mighty work and he starts to sweat, beads of sweat form and he's shaking and when he's done, he uh, falls down exasperated. He's just, uh, <laughs> that's not our Lord. He just speaks. Have you, and then, and you, you don't need to wait till he recovers from the, that exertion, that surge of power before you come back and ask again. I, I have struggled with that in my life, but it's not in the notes. I'll just say, I've struggled with that in my life where the Lord has shown up in some big way. Thank you, thank you, Father, thank you. I won't bug you again for at least three months. <laughs> I never said the words like that, but I've kind of thought like it. I won't give you any more big ass. This is the last big ask for, for a while, you know? No. Never ending goodness for his children. You can ask over and over again. He does not sweat. And that's our Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for these things we see in the word. We're so grateful for these stories. They happen in a moment. They happened in a real moment in time. There were real people standing there before your perfect son and, and real healing from real lives and hearts broken and then healed and bodies broken and then healed and joy restored and tears and laughter. And Father, we have needs and desires and we need miracles performed today. I know that every person in this room could come up with one if we asked for long enough. So, Father, teach us about your love for us. Show us that it is not in proportion to our faith that you heal or work or perform miracles. Father, please show us that you are tireless in whatever you accomplish for your people. Father, that you do not sweat. There's no difficulty and great effort that has to be exerted to do the things that you do. Father, help us to align to your will. Submit to your will that we can trust that whatever we ask for will be fulfilled precisely as you desire it to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.